Podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories. There's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale. But do these stories stand the test of time? Or are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable? Bone-chilling or butt-numbing? That's what we're here to find out. This week I'm having us return to the Hall of Fantasy with an episode entitled Man-Size in Marble. Our previous visit to this series was the excellent The Shadow People, a story we liked so much we performed it live on stage. The Shadow People was from the series' second run, broadcast from 1949 to 1953 from WGN in Chicago. By contrast, Man, Size, and Marble is from the original run of the show from 1947, broadcast from KALL in Salt Lake City. If you've heard The Shadow People or any other episodes from the later run, the differences will be unmistakable. Robert Olson adapted Man, Size, and Marble from Edith Nesbitt's short story of the same name. Nesbitt was an English author and poet born in 1858. She wrote or collaborated on more than 60 books of children's literature, and her writing would prove an influence on many subsequent classic works, including P.L. Travers, Mary Poppins, and C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Carl Grayson plays the lead in this episode, demonstrating why he was so integral to the show. On Grayson's passing in 1989, the Chicago Tribune featured an article highlighting his career as a WGN announcer. According to the article, Mr. Grayson happened to be a visitor in the radio studio when Orson Welles broadcast his famous 1938 War of the Worlds. Afterwards, he reportedly said, It didn't seem all that real in the studio. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Ladies and gentlemen, the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo presents... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of Man-Size in Marble. Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy. Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. And now for tonight's story... A radio adaptation by Bob Olson of E. Nesbitt's story, Man-Size in Marble. 
villagers called it a delusion. That explanation gave them some comfort. Since it will give you comfort also, I'll say no more about it, except that it's difficult to understand how hallucinations can commit murder. Ours was one of those marriages on a dime. I'd been doing a bit of painting in those days and never knew what it was to have the money I really needed. But then Laura knew this before she married me. Well, we'll get along if we're careful. You can paint and, and I'll write articles for the magazine. Living in town will be out of the question, dear. Well, we can find some little place in the country. As long as it's picturesque and sanitary. It doesn't matter where it is. And so we spent our honeymoon lightheartedly looking for a place that was both sanitary and picturesque. The two qualities that rarely keep company in one cottage. Little rose-covered trellises would invariably hide the corruption that lurked inside. We'd looked so hard and were so confused by the eloquence of house agents that we seriously began to doubt if we could tell a house from a haystack even if we found one. But when we came out to the little village of Brenzette and thence two miles out to see the famous little church, our search was ended. For there, just two fields away, was the cottage. Picturesque it was, for it was long and low, with rooms taking off in unexpected directions. Two of the rooms were of ancient stonework, now covered with moss and ivy. It was all that remained of a huge manor that had stood here years ago. Around these rooms had risen the cottage as it stood this day quite by itself. Our nearest neighbor was a jolly Scotch doctor, McCarthy by name, whose cottage was a little distance down the lane. Our new home nestled cozily against a low hill and looked out across the marsh meadows to the sea. Yes, it was a pretty cottage. Though stripped of its roses and jasmine, it would no doubt have been hideous. The rent was absurdly cheap, and it seemed quite likely that between the two of us, we could keep the kettle simmering. We spent the rest of our honeymoon in second-hand shops, picking up odds and ends of oak and Chippendale until the cottage soon became very homey. Fully settled, we were so happy. And that day we looked from the latticed window onto the old-fashioned garden with its colorful splash of hollyhocks and lilies. Laura sat outlined against the window, I before my easel. What are you painting, Van? You, my dear. Me? Well, why not this lovely countryside? Mm, first my wife, then the countryside. And uh, what are you writing? A verse. About what? You. <laughs> it was a gay life, the sort that only the quite humble or the very rich could enjoy. Our fortune was added to when we found Mrs. Dorman, a tall peasant woman with a good face and figure to keep house for us. Laura was delighted with her. For Mrs. Dorman was full of stories of the past. Stories of the smugglers and highwaymen who dominated this part of England, cutting purses and throats with equal zest. Better still were her stories about the things that walked and the sights that one met of a starry night. They gave Laura a good deal of material for her articles. Old wives' tales, I called them. Three months passed quickly. We hadn't had a single quarrel. That's why it startled me when on the return from a visit to Dr. McCarthy, Laura, who had always been so happy, rushed to my arms and buried her dark little head in my shoulder and wept. Laura, what is it? It's Mrs. Dorman. Well, what about Mrs. Dorman? She's leaving us. Leaving us? Well, what on earth for? She says that she must leave before the end of the month. She says that her niece is ill. But I don't believe her because, well... 
Her niece has always been ill. She acted so, so queerly. Don't cry, Laura. You know, it's a terrible shock to see you cry. I might cry a bit myself just watching you. And you'd never respect me again. Oh, but it's serious. Those people in the village are so sheepy. And, well, if Mrs. Dorman leaves us without any explanation, no one will come and take her place. I just know it. Well, then we'll share the housework. But we'll have no time to earn what we need. And, oh, we've been doing so nicely now. We'll have to work all day and, and rest only when the kettle's boiling. Oh, you exaggerate, Laura. We'll have less time, but there'll still be time. However, when Mrs. Dorman comes back, I'll have a talk with her. We'll come to some sort of terms. Tell you what, let's take a walk up to the old church. The church was large and lonely, and we enjoyed the stroll in the moonlight. The path that went through a wood and along the crest of a little hill was called the Beer Path for the dead had been carried along this path to be buried. The churchyard was enclosed by a low wall and ceiling by several large elms whose branches stretched out as if in benediction over the dead. We entered the old church from a long, low porch and through a heavy oak door studded with iron. Inside, the arches rose up into the darkness. We strolled up to the chancel where the fine colored glass windows let in faint hues of filtered moonlight. It gave everything a substance of, of shadow. Even the gray marble figures of the two knights who lay there in full plate armor with hands upheld in everlasting prayer. You know, it's a funny thing. If there is any light in this church at all, it seems to shine on these figures. Who are they? No one knows. The peasants say they were marauders, bandits. That they were the scourge of their day. Does it give you kind of a, a strange feeling to... To know they used to live where we live now. I hadn't thought much about it. Uh, has Mrs. Dorman told you the story? She doesn't know about it. She said the house was struck by a bolt of lightning. Mm, I heard it was the vengeance of heaven against their foul deeds. Funny how a pair like that would be given such an honored place in this little church. Well, the gold was good, no matter where it came from. Their heirs probably bought the honor. Mm, those marble statues certainly aren't flattering. Mm. From the looks on the faces, even in marble, I doubt their conversion to Christianity. The church looked very weird as the shadows cast eerie forms about. We looked again at the sleeping warriors and a feeling of awe came over us. Outside we sat on the ancient stone seats, gazing out across the moon-misted meadows. A sense of quiet and peacefulness came over us. At such times, troubles don't exist. Well, feel better than you did, dear? Yes, Vance. Oh, let's never leave this place. It's lovely. Ah, yes. Wasn't it silly to get all worked up over Mrs. Dorman? It's still a terrible nuisance. Oh, granted, but if scrubbing and blacking boots is the worst of our lot, we'll manage quite well even without Mrs. Dorman. Of course we will. Uh, nevertheless, when we get back to the house, I'll have a talk to her. She should be there by now. I hope you can convince her. Uh, Mrs. Dorman, what's this I hear about your leaving? Well, I'd like to leave before the end of the month, sir. Well, aren't you happy here? Uh, maybe you'd like a raise in your wages. It's not that, sir. You and your lady have been most kind. Well, then, uh, suppose we work it out so that you can stay. No, Mr. Longin, I'd rather leave. My niece is ill. Yes, I know, but she's been ill all along. Uh, would you consider staying on for another month? No, sir. I want to leave before Thursday. But this is Monday, woman. That's rather short notice. I'll tell you what. Stay on until next week. Ma, 
maybe I can come back next week. But why must you go this week? Well, speak up. It's this house, sir. This house? Well, what about it? They saw that strange deeds was done here in olden times. In olden times? Oh, but this is now. What what deeds do you mean? Well, don't worry, Mrs. Dorman. I, I'm not going to laugh at you. Well, sir, have you seen them two shipes beside the altar in the church? You mean the effigies of the knights in armor? I mean them two bodies drawed out man-size in marble. A very graphic description, Mrs. Dorman, but uh, what about the knights? In the village, they saw that on all sides eve, those bodies come to life. Those marble statues? They saw that they rise up from their slabs and walks down the aisle in their marble. Then when the church clock strikes eleven, they come out into the night and walks over the grind. But how do you suppose... When that... the night has been wet, there was the marks of their feet along the beer path. Well, where do they go? Back to their home. Their home? But their home was... In this house. Well, did anyone ever see this happen? I ain't sighing. All I know is... What I know. Who was living here last year? No one, sir. The lady would own the house, spent the summer here, but she always went up to London a good month before the night. And so you think you must go? Yes, sir. My niece is ill. Oh, your niece! Oh, very well, Mrs. Dorman. Go if you think you must. But don't say anything about this to Mrs. Langham. Must you go, Mrs. Dorman? Yes, ma'am. This is Thursday. I can't stay no longer. It's going to put quite a load on us. Don't try to do too much, Mrs. Langham. If there's anything I can do next week, well, I won't mind in the least. Thank you. Oh, but <laughs> we'll try to manage. And whatever you do, lock the door early tomorrow night and mite the sign of the cross over it. What do you mean? Uh, that's Mrs. Dorman's little Halloween joke, dear. It's no joke. And if you ask me... Goodbye, Mrs. Dorman. Goodbye. And don't forget what I said. What did she mean, then? Nothing, dear. Mrs. Dorman is just a superstitious old biddy, that's all. I would have looked forward to Friday a much happier man if I could have believed what I had just told Laura. But Friday came the day before All Saints' Eve, the day this story ends. In fact, the day that gave this story its horrible substance. You are listening to Man Size and Marble in tonight's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Company with stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo. And now back to tonight's story, Bob Olson's adaptation of Man Size in Marble. I arose early that morning and had already built a rather smoky success of a fire when Laura came down as bright as the bright morning itself. We had breakfast and went after the housework. When the brushes and pails were silent at last, we set up and spent one of the merriest days since our wedding. That afternoon we took a long walk, completely happy. And Laura, sweeter than ever. 
I decided that housework was good for her. We watched the deep flame of sunset as it slowly faded to a dull gray, and then walked back to the cottage hand in hand without a word. Once inside, we sat in the parlor and seemed to settle into a deep silence. I thought it was a happy silence, and what I asked Laura had no particular significance at the time. You seem sad, Laura. I was surprised at her answer. Yes, I, I don't think I feel quite well. I've had the shivers, and it isn't cold, is it? No, unless it's one of those nasty mists that creep up from the marsh. There is no mist, dear. Hmm, it doesn't seem to be at that. Hmm, no mist. In that case, darling, you're not entitled to a chill. Sorry. Van. Mm-hmm? Do you ever have a presentiment of evil? Mm, don't believe in them. I do. When my father died, he was away in North Scotland. But the night he died, I knew it. Oh, forgive me, Van. Come and light up the candles on the piano, and we'll play one of our duets. Ten o'clock already. Light up your pipe if you'd like, Ben. I don't mind. Yeah, I think I'll take it outside. May I come too? No, dear. You're much too tired. I shan't be long. You get to bed or you'll be ill. You're taking good care of me, darling. You have to. Can't do all this housework by myself, you know. Then give me a kiss. That will be a pleasure. Mm. Let me go with you. Uh-uh. You get some rest. Ben. Yes? We've been very happy today, haven't we? Mm, even happier than usual, sweetheart. You won't be gone long, will you? No, dear. Not long. I stepped out, leaving the door unlatched, for I expected to be back shortly. The night was magnificent. Huge masses of cloud, dark and heavy, seemed to clasp hands and reach from horizon to horizon. And through this flowing stream of clouds moved the moon, like a dolphin diving in and out of an endless succession of waves. The treetops swayed like a metronome to the gentle swing of the clouds. There was the mystic glow on the earth that comes from the blend of dew and moonlight. I drank in the serene beauty of the night. There wasn't a hint of emotion about. Not even a leaf stirred. The wind was high up, busy herding the clouds. Across the meadow, I saw the church tower standing out black against the sky. I suddenly thought of the three happy months I'd known here with Laura. Just then, the church sounded its bell. Hey, 11 o'clock. I should be getting back to the house. But first, I think I'll visit the church. I felt so happy and so very thankful. I wanted to take my gratitude to the old chapel that had heard the sorrows and the joys of its people for so many countless years. On my way, I passed our cottage and looked in the window where I saw Laura's dark little head silhouetted against the pale blue wall. She was very still. I decided not to disturb her. I turned down Beer Path. It was such a peaceful night that at first I was conscious of nothing. And then, suddenly, I became aware of a rustling sound that broke the stillness ever so gently. I stopped to listen. The sound stopped, too. I took another step and listened. The step seemed to echo my own. Well, if that's a poacher, he's a fool not to step more lightly. I left the beer path and took to the woods. The footsteps seemed to echo along the path I had just left. It was strange. 
strange. Yes, it was strange. Ah, but then all night sounds are strange. I passed through the corpse gate and walked among the graves to the low porch of the church. The door was open. Huh. Did I leave that open? I'd hate to have the damp get in and ruin those fine old fabrics. I went in and was halfway up the aisle when suddenly I remembered. That bell struck eleven o'clock. This is the very day, the very hour when the shapes drawn out man's size in marble begin to walk. Once I did remember, it came on me with a shiver. And I was ashamed. And so to make up for it, I walked boldly to the altar. I did that because, well, because I wanted to tell Mrs. Dorman how peacefully the shapes had slept through the ghastly hour. And so with my hands nonchalantly shoved into my pockets, I passed up the aisle. In the dim gray light, the other end of the church looked more, well, it looked larger than usual. The arches above the two tombs seemed to have grown too. At that moment, the moon came out from behind a cloud, and in the ghostly beams of light, I... I saw the reason. They're gone! I steadied myself. It's... it's some fool's practical joke. They... they can't be gone. I'm not in the right place. It's... it's... it's too dark to see here clearly. Yes, that's it. I took a newspaper from my pocket and lit it with a match. It flared up brightly. The confirmation was sickening. The bodies drawn out man's size in marble had actually disappeared from the church. Suddenly I was gripped with an indefinable horror. It was an overwhelming certainty of finished calamity. I threw down the torch and dashed down the aisle, out the front door and into the night. They're gone. They're gone. Help me, someone. The bodies, they're gone. Said old Doon, man. Let go of me, you fool. The marble figures have gone from the church. They've disappeared, I tell you. Hey, they know. You've been smoking too much. Smoking and listening to old wives' tell. Oh, doctor, I've seen the bare slabs with my own eyes. They're gone, I tell you. We'll come back with me. I'm going up to the palmer's No, His loss is sick. We'll have a look into the bare slabs. Well, you can go if you like. I'm going home to Laura. Rubbish. I'll never permit it. You can't go around all your life as saying you saw a slab of marble in vitality. You can't do it, man. I'm not going back there. Then you want that you should be a coward? Coward? No, but... I, coward? I can help you if you didn't go down with me. Oh, all right. Come on. No, here we are at the church. Come in with me. I'm coming. Oh, what have you got your ears closed for? Here. I'll strike a match. No, look there. What here you had to drink, man? I opened my eyes, and what I saw made me absolutely mad. A huge black screen dropped across my reason, for there on the cold gray slabs were the two grotesque shapes in their marble. I... I... Dr. McCarthy, I, I simply don't know what to say. It must have been the light, or, or maybe I have been working too hard. <laughs> yes, you know, I I was sure they were gone. Aye, I'm quite aware of that. You'll have to do something about that brain of yours. But, but wait, look at this hand. What's wrong with it, Doctor? It's been broken. There's a finger missing. 
finger. But the last time I saw it, it was perfect. Someone may have tried to remove it. That can't be right. My impression was that they were gone. Completely disappeared. That was too much tobacco and painting. Perhaps. Well, come along, Dr. McCarthy. My wife will be getting anxious. I told her I wouldn't be gone long. Well, I should be going off to the Palmers. I'd appreciate it if you'd come on to the cottage with me and... And, and drink to my better senses. Or confusion to all ghosts or something. <laughs> well, it's pretty late, no? I had to see a lot of people tonight. So I could go to the Palmers tomorrow. Horrid, I'll come with you. I believe I needed the sensible old doctor more than the Palmer girl did. You've had an illusion, man. Nothing more than an illusion. Yes, I fancy you're right about that, doctor. Yeah, but it was a most amazing one. Dr. McCarthy then went into a dissertation on ghosts and apparitions as we walked on up to the cottage. When we reached the garden path, I was a little puzzled by the bright light that was streaming out the front door. Soon I saw that it was wide open. Had Laura gone for a walk? Well, come on in, Doctor. We'll find Laura and then pour ourselves a drop of whiskey. Good. The house was ablaze with candles. Laura had not only lit the wax ones... But there must have been a dozen other sputtering, glaring, tallow dips stuck all over the room in odd little places. Laura, we have company. Oh, Laura. I wonder if she went out for a walk. Uh, Laura. Bunch. Yes? Uh, look. Where? <laughs> there in the little recess of the window I saw her. What had she been doing there? Looking for me? But the doctor said it before I quite dared to. Someone's been in this room. Has Gina belong here? Who? Yeah, who? Laura didn't move. Her mouth was drawn and her eyes were wide open. Very wide. She looked as if she'd heard a footstep behind her and turned to meet. What? I passed my hands over her eyes. They saw nothing. What had they seen last? The doctor moved toward her, but I pushed him aside as if I were afraid of what he'd say. And then I took her in my arms. Laura, Laura, darling, I've got you now. You're safe. Aye, she's safe. She's dead. <laughs> oh, no. She fell into my arms like a limp, loose-jointed doll. I was slightly mad with this horrible sense of loss. But I knew she was dead. I knew it, and nothing mattered anymore. Laura was dead, and the world was dead. And I silently prayed that I might die. What's in her hand? I don't know. I don't care. Laura's dead. But the doctor pried open her fingers... And soon something fell out of that grim clutch and dropped to the floor. We looked at it, and then at each other. For what we saw was no hallucination. It seemed to fairly shriek its defiance to reason. For there on the floor was a gray marble finger. And so runs the tale of Man-sized in marble. 
Remember to join us next week at the same time for another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. Tonight's story was adapted from the story by E. Nesbitt entitled Man Size and Marble. Heard in tonight's program were Carl Grayson as Vance Langham, Beth Calder as Laura, Phyllis Perry as Mrs. Darman, and Archie Hugely as Dr. McCarthy. Musical background was provided by Earl Donaldson. The technical supervisor was Nephi Sorensen. This program was written by Bob Olson and produced and directed by Richard Thorne. Remember, be with us again next Sunday night on call at 8.30 p.m. when the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo will take you on another journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. That was Man Size in Marble from the series Hall of Fantasy here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. First of all, a terrible name for a furniture company <laughs> is Granite Furniture Company. That's, uh, that's really hard to move and hard to get your friends to come over Sounds and help you move. so comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, Fred it, Flintstone Furniture. It should have been... Man size in furniture. I'm just gonna pull the trigger. You ready? Yeah. This is Tim's pick. Yeah. Oh, I hated it. <laughs> what? Yep. Wow. So, Tim, I'm so sorry. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tim, I did not like much here. Uh, the language for let's just start there. It's so flowery. It's so poetic and. It's so well written. <laughs> I, I will tell you why I brought this to our table. Because you knew I'd hate it. In part. <laughs> I wanted you to take my same journey. I started listening to this episode and just loved its beautiful language. I loved the evocative scenery and this church with these two mysterious statues. And I was enjoying it and I was captured. And then they meet with the servant girl and the worst British accent in the <laughs> world comes out. <laughs> that is true. And it this is... episode just careens out of control. <laughs> it is terrible. Um, uh, the you accent? like the language. I have in my notes lots of great turns of phrase, sanitary and picturesque, two qualities that rarely go together. I laughed out loud. A kind of life that could only be enjoyed by the very rich or very humble. There was great writing in this. I thought so as well. I found it to be over descriptive. There was I will I will the say the setup is so long. It's I so love the long. It yeah, had to be part. set up to be that this cozy. They were so happy together. They had an artist cottage. Right. I painted and you wrote and it was like it's <laughs> it's that sense of like these guys are so doomed. Because <laughs> we know what show it is. You can do that in a lot less time. Well, the, I loved I loved that setup. This adaptation of the short story was an extremely faithful adaptation in as much as not much got changed for the radio. And that's the problem. This is written on the radio like a novel. It's a different language for a radio drama. It's a different way to and and this just sounds like someone reading the book to me. And you know, I'm not a big fan of overly descriptive when I'm reading books, and, I, and then I looked, and the grass was green, like a in a metaphorical <laughs> green thing, thing. Like, like a green thing that is. <laughs> I don't know. 
You like Foley. You just want to hear him walking on that grass. You want it to be really yeah. brittle, loud grass that you can well, hear. I want it to be more <laughs> The impulse real. to cut to the chase, I <laughs> sympathize. What about cutting to the chase? It's about, do people really talk like that? Painters and artists do. I don't feel I like don't it was in the... I think they yeah. do. I think that literary people think they want them to. <laughs> but there's a difference between putting that kind of language in narration, mm-hmm. when it is in summary, and he is describing what is happening. He's not talking to a person. He is using uh, this sort of narration device where the language becomes more heightened. The dialogue didn't strike me as that when they're just talking to one another and talking to people. No, not at all. Yeah, It's it's, it's the narration. And I think that's a standard thing in old-time radio. Suspense uses it, escape uses it, and when it goes to narration, it's often far more formal. I can understand that it just didn't speak to you. I thought it was very witty and clever. I wouldn't mind it if it it. wasn't so long before, as I wrote in my notes, it took him too long to get to the church. You're like, die, honeymooners, die. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we're happy. Life's good. It's going great. We found this cottage. I mean, my God, I was on the real estate tour with them for 30 (laughs) minutes as they tried to pick their cottage. And then they finally found it. Just here it is. Took a while, but we found the right cottage. See how quick I got to that? Oh, but you would miss out on so much. Like when no, they're, and when I'm they're here, looking no, at the, no, listen, when they're looking no. at the marble statues, this is the best line in the whole thing. And I know it's straight from the short story, but when they're looking at the ugly marble marauders, and he goes, even in marble, I doubt their conversion to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's here's, so much of that that I love. Here's where it really fails for me, because all of that time spent doing all that was not given to something that wasn't in there. And I'm going to read right from my notes. This would have been a lot better to actually hear and see the marble monsters coming to life. It would have made for great radio. The sound of the moving, the noises they make, the actual breaking things away as they they become to life, and them seeing it and going, oh my God, all of that, could have taken the place of, and then we looked at cottage number six. That's funny because by the time we got to when the statues come to life, we've plowed through two really abysmal accents, and I, <laughs> they had really lost me by this point. So, and I just imagined with the losing of the finger that it was a comedy routine breaking into this woman's house. Like, oh my finger, hit her again! Oh, I'm hurt so badly. <laughs> All right, so so you didn't like the second half. The accents took you out of it. Yes, and I went back and read the short story, and going through the end of the short story, like, no, with just the text, I'm fine. These accents actually reached out to other parts of the story and ruined it for me. Wow. There's so many bad accents in old-time radio. It's sort of like a a low production value that I tend to forgive if they are not the main characters. I I will agree with you on that, that the accents didn't bother me. I can't can't defend them. I I don't think they were good in But in old-time radio, there's so much of it that I'm just like... At least I can discern the difference between this person and that person, and that's all. See, now you're making me afraid that future episodes, this is what you can expect. (laughs) (laughs) No, these are particularly poor. Here's what I want you to agree to. I I think I can get you to agree to this. Would it have not been cool to hear and consequently see in our minds these granite statues coming to life? The reaction to it as they break away from their their holdings and march through the church and out the door and rip the doors off and head down toward the cottage number seven. And, and wouldn't that have been awesome to listen to? I, I agree. It would be awesome to listen to. However, it would totally rewrite the story because the story. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> but, but you also have to admit, I hear your point. 
I totally okay. bet that would be an exciting bit of Foley, yes. But the story at that point turns on the fact that Ben doesn't believe in any of this. And he comes to the church and he sees that they're missing. It's a different kind of terror seeing them come alive than just they're gone. Did somebody steal these statues? No, that's not rational. Are they alive? But had he seen them come alive, it would be a totally different kind of right. horror. It would have sounded cool, but I don't think it would have been frightening. The fact that we don't ever see them, and maybe you could desperately come up with some other excuse except for this stone finger. Hitchcock, right? Yeah. You don't actually see the knife going in, right? Yeah. I mean, okay. I agree with you. That would I be agree excellent with you on that. Foley, I, I think that's fine. I just... It, it it got so long and boorish to me, and and so oh look at this and look at that and look at this, oh and then the statue and then we have a thing, then we finally have a thing that is too quick. Like the conflict is like oh are they alive and then she's dead and she has a, a finger in her hand. And again, it it seems so much more plausible, acceptable in the short story that in the radio it struck me as weird that it's the night when the thing's happening. And he forgot. He was like, oh, well, I'm going to go down and check to make sure, just to prove it didn't happen. And, okay, he didn't forget. But he's going down to the church to prove they're still there. It's fine. Well, I didn't think he's proving it. In, I mean, he might be in the short story I, I read no, it no, ages ago. But it, it sounds like he's just comp- it's so preposterous to him that he has not even taken it seriously enough. I suppose that makes sense. To that, remember. And that he's not going to yeah. race home and, and check a, the wife. There's a great detail, and it felt really real to me when he at first does not notice the statues are gone, but he looks in the whole, everything else everything looks, bigger. Looks, looks bigger because something's missing. Yeah. And you've walked in the room and someone's changed something and you don't notice it at first, but you sense it. I thought that was a great bit of like authentic human detail where I could be like, Oh, I can put myself in his place. There's also, I really like the final image when they come find her sitting in the window. That her I like eyes that are too. wide open. Okay. Listen, I like That's that part. A, that's a terrifying, and he, sad moment. And he puts his hand in front of her, and she doesn't react, and all of that. And, and there's this great line when he's holding her, and she says, you're safe. And the doctor, even though it's a bad accent, but the, <laughs> the, the doctor says, I, she's safe, she's dead. And to me, that could be the Hall of Fantasy motto. You're safe when you're dead. That's sort of, <laughs> <laughs> sort of the motto of this entire radio show, and that they have innocent people die over and over again. I thought that the main character... Well, first of all, he gets super angry for a guy that talks that flowery. <laughs> he really has a trigger. You want this guy's temper. lunch money? He's like, because oh, here's the deal: you guys can't sweep up and do a dish now and then. They're so mad that this. What is she a maid? Yeah. Well, because she's because leaving for a week or whatever it is. And there's two people in a cottage. How much work is there to do? And you're so mad, Johnny Flowery talk. <laughs> <laughs> Part of it is that he wants his wife to be able to write and not do any housework. Yeah, because that right? half hour a day for the two of them, uh, that just made me mad. They are you artists. A... You, you've lived with artists before. Oh. They are slobs. I would kill for a half hour a day to write. <laughs> <laughs> These people didn't have anything else to do. They were just painting and reading. They could take an hour out of their day to do the dishes. Well, so, so is this the most like weirdly divided we've ever been in the because you hated it, I loved it, and you're I loved the first half, and then it. these accents just threw me out of the room. Wow, is this the end of the podcast? <laughs> right. No, no. <laughs> Here's a couple of notes I want to go over. First of all, did you catch that I, that he walks through Corpse Gate when he no, goes it's into the Beer Gate? Yeah. What's Corpse Gate? Why did I write that down? I heard him say, "I walked through the Corpse Gate." I thought they said beer, but uh, am I All wrong? Right, I thought or was it, it was something beer. I don't know if it was the gate, but or I thought beer. that was a little too on the nose. If it was, corpse it was beer gate. path, beer path. Yes, yeah, beer you. path, but corpse gate. 
Oh, you're right. Yeah, there was Corpse Gate. Yeah. That, that's why do you? Which call is a it scandal that? politically. Because it's a church in a cemetery. It's the <laughs> path that you took the bodies down. We call it like rainbow and unicorn path. <laughs> <laughs> <I mean. laughs> well, they might as well the way they talk in this thing. God, I turned into Archie Bunker there for a <laughs> Who is Dr. McCarthy? Where did he come from? All of a sudden, there's a guy. He's a neighbor. All right. Yeah. He's the nearest just, neighbor. Just they, they not complaining. That. I just didn't catch Now your hate is just generalized. Yes. It's like, and they had extra characters in this thing. And why did they talk out loud? <laughs> I mean, I am on your side of like, okay, get me back in this. Oh, no, he's talking. And it's the Scottish. Oh, God, so bad. Um, I did like the line where Dr. McCarthy says to him, I think you've been smoking too much. <laughs> he does say yeah. tobacco specifically. Does he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he does okay, say tobacco. Okay. And he, he also says you should do something about that brain of yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have maligned the accents in this and, and I think utterly fair criticism. However, I do want to say, and I, I don't know the actors' names, but I thought the two leads were really good. I particularly agree. the male lead. Carl Grayson. Yeah, Carl Grayson. That moment of hysteria after he realizes that this old wives' tale could be true and that he's left his wife alone in the cottage, like before he bumps into uh, the doctor who becomes that sort of voice of reason that talks him down, I thought that hysteria was really believable. It wasn't too small. It wasn't too over the top. I agree. And it's part of part of my reaction is I was so in love with the first half of this yep. with his performance and uh, her performance, which I can't remember who the woman was. Uh, I'm going to feel bad now. She's dead. Her feelings won't be hurt, I'm sure. <laughs> She's safe. <laughs> She's dead. They, I thought they were both so lovely and handled the language that uh, did not please Eric, but pleased me uh, so well that when the actress, Phyllis something, was who played the, the maid, okay. started I, doing exposition in I, such a bad dialect. So bad. I did write down the actor's name who played the doctor because it was Archie <laughs> Hugely, <laughs> Archie that's Hugely. That's I, unfortunate. I just love that name. I think I have some of his movies. <laughs> I he did. I checked his uh, credits. Mm -hmm. He did this and another show in Hall of Fantasy called Mark of Shame. <laughs> Here's a question: Archie Hugely's Mark of Shame. <laughs> Before we wrap this up, I have one last question. It's serious. Plot point wise, I'm going to get ripped for this. Here we go. I don't understand the. Monster's motivation to come to life to go kill the woman in the cottage. That was their cottage, and she's sitting they were there going uh, home. She's sitting there riding these fancy, flowerful. They're like you. They hate <laughs> the way she writes and Thank the flowerful you. language, and they come like, kill my finger, Foley. Oh, my finger. <laughs> then they gave her the finger. <laughs> right. Okay, now I get it. That's where they used to live. Yep. Yeah, I, in Rogers. fact, could imagine they just went there to say, hey, happy Halloween. So I said, my finger, ah, oh, killer. <laughs> I, I would have enjoyed that. I wish that did happen. All right, well, so what's our final vote? Like, <laughs> it's not really obvious. <laughs> um, I will say this, that after listening to you guys, I have uh, turned a little warmer to it. It's interesting to hear when you're sitting there listening going and taking notes and going, well, this is... A complete waste of time, and uh, and I'm not enjoying this at all, and yada yada. To hear you guys talk about it, I, went, I, I find it very interesting, and I've warmed up to it a little. It, yeah, okay, I get what you're saying. So uh, I tend to want to get to plot points faster, and not really, yeah. But and I've I've used this reference before in our podcast a long time ago. 
And Glorious Bastards is a movie with a lot of waiting for something to happen. And people hated this. And I really love the suspense of something's going to happen. And there were such long periods in that movie. And other things have done the same formula, right? What you guys are saying is that all of this buildup actually leads to the suspense. Mm -hmm. Their beautiful life being torn down, correct? I wouldn't even call this a suspense story. I think it's mood or tone oriented. You like these characters. I feel like you're emotionally, or I was, in this in this couple. They seem pleasant. They seem totally in love. You know it's Hall of Fantasy, so you know at the bare minimum one of them is going <laughs> to die. So it had that sort of inevitable doom quality to it that I found appealing. And there is a lot of wit in the writing, which comes straight from Nesbitt's original story so i appreciated that but i i hear you this was not a a suspense engine right this wasn't like move from plot point to plot point this wasn't twist upon twist upon twist by any means it was a very traditional ghost story kind of and that might be a fault of mine how much i want to get to the point you know and stop telling me it's just your taste it's not what the grass looked like for 20 minutes Tim, you you liked half of it. Yes, very much. I think especially it, it did me some good to just read the, the story, which I'll link to in the actual post there, uh, although it's very much word for word, with very few exceptions to what the radio episode was, but to experience it without the dialects, which I'm normally, I'm normally not such a harsh critic of performances, but wow, it just hit me too, hard. Too much. Man, wow, that accent. Wow. Let's <laughs> stand the test of time for you. Um, Science. yeah, again, this is the exact opposite of your reaction is the the language I think was very powerful and worked very well. Uh, and I very much liked that, uh, the, the scene Josh was describing of coming to know these statues in the church of what are these pirates doing with statues in the church? Mm-hmm. That could have been explored more for me too. Uh, I, I like, like that, that concept. But yeah, Joshua stands at this time. Stands at this time for me. I thoroughly classic? enjoyed it. I wouldn't call it a classic, but I really enjoyed it. All right. <laughs> Everybody knows where I stand. Thanks for listening to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Uh, if you want to know more, Tim, please go to ghoulishdelights.com. Uh, there you'll find old episodes of this podcast. We did a lot of different shows of a lot of different types. Please check them out. Uh, you'll also find information about our live performances. We go out into the world. In particular, we go to the James J. Hill Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, and perform some of these scripts live. And we'll be at the Minnesota Fringe Festival this year performing some of these. We will. Yay. Also, if you would like to go to iTunes and write an actual review of this podcast i would encourage you to do so um, because uh reviews do help and uh, we love to hear from you all right our next episode is joshua's yes and we are going to be listening to an episode from the canadian older radio series theater 1030 called the screaming skull until next time look out